Hello, it is time to read from the Sioux City Journal for today, Saturday, January 21st, 2023. My name is John Reef, and I'll be bringing you the news today. Uh, we'll start with the weather and then move to the mini editorial, then the front page for those stories, and then move into the inside pages for more stories of local interest. At the 30-minute mark, we'll do the obituaries and then uh, do some more stories for uh, feature stories and sports, wrapping up with Dear Abby and the weather one more time. Plenty of sunshine for today, a high of 30 degrees, winds west-southwest at 6 to 12 miles an hour. Mostly cloudy tonight, low of 15 and winds west-northwest still at 6 to 12. On Sunday, sun and then some low clouds coming in here and there, a high of 23 tomorrow, winds west-southwest at 4 to 6 miles an hour. Sunday night's low 13 degrees under mostly cloudy skies and mostly cloudy on Monday, a high of 31 and winds west-northwest at 6 to 12. Monday night's low of 14 degrees under clearing skies, and then intervals of clouds and sunshine on Tuesday, a high of 29. Winds south-southeast again at 6 to 12 miles an hour. Tuesday night's low of 11, and then mostly cloudy Wednesday, and a high of 26 degrees with winds out of the northwest at 8 to 16 miles per hour. Today's uh, mini editorials from the Journal Editorial Board, and it reads as follows, follows. How does the Iowa Cattlemen's Association feel about hamburger not qualifying for purchase under proposed changes to the state's SNAP program? And again, that from the Journal Editorial Board. Top story on the front page. Bill would allow minors to serve alcohol. Subcommittee advances proposal but notes concerns, this dateline Des Moines by Tom Barton. A three-member subcommittee of Iowa House lawmakers this week advanced a bill that would allow Iowa restaurant workers under the age of 18 to serve alcohol. House File 14, filed by Representative John Wills, Republican from Spirit Lake, eliminates the age for serving or selling alcohol in taverns and restaurants. The bill removes the age restriction for all retail establishments licensed to sell alcohol for on-premises consumption. Willis, however, said it's not his intent to lower the age for serving or selling alcohol in bars and taverns from 18. Quote, it's kind of a silly law that we have that minors cannot carry drinks from the bar to the table. But if that they don't drink that drink, the miner can pick up that full drink and bring it back to the kitchen to dispose of it. It's a workforce issue because restaurants that serve alcohol can't hire miners because they can only do part of the job, end quote, he said. The Iowa Restaurant Association and Iowa Hotel and Lodging Association support the bill. David Edelman a lobbyist who represents the Iowa Travel Industry Partners said the bill addresses workforce issues within Iowa's hospitality and tourism industry. Many small businesses are having a hard time finding workers. Allowing teens under the age of 18 to serve or sell alcohol would give restaurants more options amid staffing shortages, he said. Quote, we believe it can be done in a responsible manner, end quote, Edelman said. Representative John Forbes, Democrat from Urbandale, says he's concerned about having teens as young as 14 or 15 
serving alcohol as opposed to adults, and he questioned the liability and insurance issues that arise for businesses, particularly if they serve someone underage. Quote, the pressure being put on an individual like that, there could be pressure from an individual to maybe try to get them to serve them underage, end quote, Forbes said. Adding, quote, children serving alcohol, in my mind, sends the wrong message, end quote. Representative Shannon Lundgren, Republican from Piosta, who owns a bar and grill, agreed that the bill is written, as written, is too, quote, broad and vague, end quote, but advanced the bill to continue the discussion and work on it in committee. Quote, I think there are some things we can do to help with the workforce shortage, end quote, Lundgren said, noting her children grew up working in the family's restaurant, but couldn't take an open bottle or beer over to a table. Quote, I think we do have training that is available through many resources that, you know, we would hold those children who decided and parents who decided to allow them to work in this industry accountable, end quote, she said. Continuing her quote, and make sure that there is a supervision which really isn't spelled out here. I certainly wouldn't hire a 14-year-old to serve drinks, end quote. Moving back to the front page, the middle of the front page, the big inset picture and the big story. New County Jail on schedule. Media Day was held Friday, this by Caitlin Yamada and Dateline Sioux City. Construction on the new Woodbury County Law Enforcement Center is progressing on schedule with much of the exterior support structure complete. The jail is expected to be finished at the beginning of September, with a month of moving in before it is officially occupied. With a little over seven months left of construction, the new county jail has taken shape and the interior is being worked on with some areas already receiving sheetrock. The prefabricated jail cells are estimated to begin arriving on February 6th. Quote, it's looking like a facility more and more every day. We've got some great people working out there, and they're doing everything they can to get it completed on time, end quote. Authority Chair Ron Wick said. Shane Albright of the Project Consultant Baker Group said there have been a variety of challenges, but it is rewarding to see the building take shape. While construction is progressing, the LEC Authority focusing on making sure the project is sticking to the specifications as well as planning for the furniture, phones, internet, and other administrative items. Quote, because of the pandemic and everything furniture can take, and everything furniture can take literally six to nine months to come. We have a building built, but let's make sure it can function for the people once it is built. End quote, he said. The Law Enforcement Center Authority held a media day on Friday to show pictures and video of the building's progress. Due to the visitation policy and the security of the building, the public is not allowed on the site without meeting certain criteria. Wick said allowing people to visit the building is both a security concern and requires them to pull the Hausman construction staff off of their work to guide the tours. Quote, as authority chairman, I want to see the Hossman people building a building out there, not conducting tours, end quote, Wick said. 
Woodbury County voters passed a $50.3 million bond issue in March of 2020, but due to the COVID-19 pandemic and supply chain issues, the low bid for the main construction phase came in well above estimates at $58.4 million. With change orders, the main construction cost is estimated at just under $60 million. Counting other additional expenses, the project cost stands at $69 million. The new total estimate includes design fees, project management fees, land purchases, bond costs, project change orders, and site preparation. The 122,000-square-foot jail will hold up to 448 inmates, nearly double the roughly 234 inmate capacity for the current aging facility located across the street from the county courthouse. The new law enforcement center will also have separate offices for the county sheriff and attorney, plus five courtrooms. In October, the precast concrete walls fell and broke due to high winds. All the panels needed to be replaced, but Albright said it did not add any costs to the project nor create any delays. On page A4, it shows construction at the new Woodbury County Law Enforcement Center in jail. This is a picture shown from Wednesday. On the front page, it shows a very large picture and a smaller Picture below, uh, the large one showing construction at the new Woodbury County Law Enforcement Center in jail, shown Wednesday, and the same label applies to the smaller picture. There's just really three different angles of the same thing going on. Last story on the front page, Tribes File Voting Rights Lawsuit. This is by Nick Hytrek in Dateline, Omaha. Newly redrawn Thurston County Board of Supervisors districts dilute the elected power of Native American voters who make, a, a, make up a majority of the county's population and are designed to ensure white politicians maintain control of the board, a new federal lawsuit says. The Winnebago and Omaha tribes of Nebraska have sued Thurston County and its Board of Supervisors for alleged Federal Voting Rights Act violations, saying the district map approved in 2022 does not provide Native voters a fair chance to elect candidates of their choice in at least four of the seven supervisor districts. Quote, Native Americans now make up a majority of the voting age population in Thurston County. Instead of following the law to provide four of the seven districts with effective Native American voter majorities, the board rigged the district map in a way to reduce Native American representation into the minority, end quote. Omaha Tribal Secretary Cheyenne Robinson said in a statement released by three civil rights groups representing the tribes. Robinson, along with Winnebago Tribal Chairwoman Victoria Kitchen, and seven individuals who are bringing the suit, in which they ask for a judge's order declaring the county's new district map violates the VRA, preventing the county from conducting future elections using that map and requiring implementation of a new districting plan consistent with the VRA's requirements. Also named as defendants are county board members Glenn Meyer, Mark English, 
Georgia Mayberry, James Price Sr., Davin French, Arnie Harlan, and Jim Mueller, and County Clerk Patty Bessmer. Meyer, the board chairman, did not return a message seeking comment. English, the vice chairman, was not available for comment. Bessmer said Friday afternoon she had just learned of the lawsuit and couldn't comment on it. She said she didn't know if the board would issue a statement. According to the lawsuit filed in U.S. District Court in Omaha, the population of Thurston County, home to both the Winnebago and Omaha Indian Reservations, is 57,000, or excuse me, 57.5% Native and 36% White. Natives make up 50.3% of the voting age population compared with 43% of Whites. Other races make up the remainder of the county's population. Because of that majority, the lawsuit says Native Americans should have a legitimate chance to elect representatives in at least four districts. But the current plan, adopted by the board in January of 2021, gives them a clear majority in only three. Though Natives have a slight majority in two other districts, the lawsuit said, those districts were drawn purposely by non-Native board members to take advantage of traditional low Native voter turnout to, quote, further make those districts even safer for non-Hispanic white incumbents, end quote. The current board currently has two members who are Natives and five who are white. The new districts were used in the 2022 election cycle in which no Native candidates ran in three of the four districts up for election. In the fourth, Robinson lost in the Democratic primary to a white candidate who later withdrew from the race, leaving English, a white Republican incumbent, unopposed in the general election. After raising concerns about an initial redistricting plan, tribal representatives submitted a proposed map in which four districts would have a native population of 65% or higher. At a January 5, 2021 meeting, the board rescinded its approval of the initial plan. Supervisor James Price Sr., a Winnebago tribe member, moved to adopt the tribe's proposed district map, but his motion died for a lack of a second. Supervisor Arnie Harlan, an Omaha tribe member, was not at the meeting. The board advanced a third proposal, which reduced the native majorities in two of the districts from the initial proposal and passed it 5-1 to one with Price casting the dissenting vote. The tribes in the lawsuit say the board provided no notice of its final map before the meeting and only after it was approved was it made available to the tribes and the public. The tribes have won two previous voting rights lawsuits against the county. In 1978, the Justice Department sued the county over its at-large method of, selecting, of electing supervisors. A consent decree in that case resulted in the current seven-district format. The second lawsuit stemmed from redistricting after the 1990 census dis, uh, diluted Native voting strength by not creating a third district in which Natives had an effective majority. Quote, for the third time, Thurston County will be told they must give fair access to the polls 
Hopefully they learn this time, end quote. Jennifer, uh, Jennifer Bear Eagle, a lawyer with Big Fire Law and Policy Group, one of three civil rights groups filing the lawsuit on the tribe's behalf, said in a news release. There's a fast fact inserted into the article. It says the population of Thurston County, home to both the Winnebago and Omaha Indian Reservations, is 57.5% Native and 36% White. Natives make up 50.3% of the voting age population, compared with 43% of Whites. Other races make up the remainder of the county's population. And it shows a graph of the Thurston County Board of Supervisors who approved the map shown, uh, the map of supervisors' districts in January 2022. The Winnebago and Omaha tribes of Nebraska have filed a lawsuit claiming the map violates the Federal Voting Rights Act because it discriminates against Native American voters. Moving now to page A2. And at the top of page A2, shooting by six-year-old raises complex cultural questions. This is by Holly Raymer of the Associated Press. He was six in his first grade class in Newport News, Virginia. He pointed a handgun at his teacher, police say, and then he pulled the trigger. And across the nation, people didn't quite know how to react. Even in a country where gun violence is sadly commonplace, the story of a small boy with a gun is reverberating in a big way. There has been finger-pointing, confusion, floundering for answers, mass grappling with deeply uncomfortable feelings, and questions. How could something like this possibly happen? Where in the national consciousness do we put it? Quote, it is almost impossible to wrap our minds around the fact that a six-year-old first grader brought a loaded handgun to school and shot a teacher, End quote. Mayor Philip Jones said that day, January 6th. Quote, However, this is exactly what our community is grappling with today. End quote. It's not just his community, though, and it wasn't just that day. This is a country full of people who know exactly what they think about everything and say so. Yet many are throwing their hands up at this. In a land awash in hot takes, it's a head scratcher, a heart scratcher even. Quote, I never thought elementary students being the shooter was a possibility we would ever see, end quote, says Kendra Newton, a first grade teacher in Florida. That may be because it sits outside what people are accustomed to. Jennifer Tallarico, a psychology professor at Lafayette College in Easton, Pennsylvania, believes the case hits differently in part because it violates the society's expectations for both school shootings of which there were two others elsewhere in the country that day, and childhood itself. Quote, sadly, we have schemas, we have rubrics, we have archetypes for school shootings in this country. We have a sort of script for these things, end quote, said Tallarico, who has studied how people uh, remember indirectly experienced events. Quote, using the phrase school shooting as a shorthand, leads us to develop that story in our heads, and when the facts of the case are so different, that is what's surprising, end quote. Americans typically view childhood as an encapsulation of the best of our society and values, Tallarico says. Innocence, fun, joy, love. 
anything that challenges that deep-seated view on Earth's complicated questions about the culture and community in which a child is being raised, whether it be local culture and community or the entire nation. Quote, that's some hard self-reflection, she says. That is why the story is resonating with people, end quote. Americans are left struggling with a scenario that doesn't fit into any bucket. But as jarring as that may feel, there's a danger in trying to force the incident into a familiar framework, says Marsha Levick, chief legal officer and co-founder of the Juvenile Law Center. She believes Americans have become, quote, so stuck in a place of punishment, end quote, that they have lost the ability to have conversations outside those boundaries. By labeling the shooting with the loaded word, quote, end quote, intentional, Newport News Police Chief Steve Drew is inviting people to view it as a criminal act, Levick asserts. Quote, that is ludicrous. It is absurd. It is utterly inconsistent with science and what we know about human development and child development, she says. Let's own that. This was not a criminal act, end quote. Levick would like law enforcement to acknowledge that, quote, this is not our lane, end quote, as it did more than two decades ago in one of the few cases from the recent past that bears some resemblance to the Virginia shooting. When a six-year-old boy shot and killed a classmate in Michigan in 2000, Genesee County prosecuting attorney Arthur Bush didn't go after the boy, but after those who provided access to the gun. In an interview last week, Bush said he's been surprised by the repeated use of quote-unquote intentional by Newport News police. Quote, it was like fingernails on a chalkboard when I heard the police say it was intentional. We don't call it intentional when it's a six-year-old. He's not old enough to have intent, end quote. The Virginia case is sure to stir debate about gun control and school safety. But Moira O'Neill, who led New Hampshire's Office of the Child Advocate for five years, says anyone feeling shaken by the incident can take a few simple steps. She says an abundance of research shows that the best way to support child development and promote resilience is to offer children a sense of belonging. In short, don't let your shock paralyze you. Take steps to value children in your own community. Quote, this is not a big commitment. This is simply knowing the kids, knowing their names, and giving the impression if they need help, they, they can ask, she said. If neighbors choose to settle with being shocked without thinking through ways they can contribute to child well-being and safety, they're sending the message that the children are not valued, end quote. Whether all of the reflection around the Virginia shooting leads to change remains to be seen. Talarico, whose words include studying the, quote, memory-laden language, end quote, that often surrounds big events, says imperatives like, quote, unquote, never forget, don't always lead to sweeping action, particularly when it comes to guns. Quote, never forget, end quote, she says, continuing her quote, hasn't effectively translated to never again, end quote. Shows an inset picture of Willow Crawford, her older sister Ava, and Kaylin Vestry, and exp they're expressing their support for Richneck Elementary School first grade teacher Abby Zwerner during a candlelight vigil in her honor 
on January 9th at the school administration building in Newport News, Virginia. Swarner was shot and wounded by a six-year-old student while teaching class on January 6th. Girls are holding signs. One says, I hope you feel better, Ms. Zwiener. I Zwerner, I love you by Willow. And hope you feel better, Ms. Zwerner, in the other sign. Another inset picture shows community members clapping in support of Evelyn Cox as she speaks about poor behavior from students in front of the Newport News School Tuesday in Newport News, Virginia, uh, at the administration building on Tuesday. Community members spoke about issues and solutions to violence in schools following the shooting at Richneck Elementary by a six-year-old that left a teacher in critical condition. Next story, Park Supervisor says Sioux City property owners need to determine the course of action for ash trees. This by Dolly A. Butts and Dateline Sioux City. Sioux City Parks Maintenance Supervisor Kelly Bach is urging residents who will need to remove or treat ash trees to do their due diligence by getting several quotes from arborists. Quote, ask questions. What chemicals are you going to use? What are the effects of those chemicals? As with anything, will there be an influx of people wanting to treat your trees, removing your trees? End quote, Bach said during a news conference at the Sioux City Public Museum on Friday. The Iowa Department of Agriculture and Land Stewardship announced Thursday that the emerald ash borer's presence has been confirmed in Sioux City in samples collected from trees. Since its original detection in 2010, the invasive ash tree killing insect from Asia now has been found in all but three of Iowa's 99 counties, Plymouth, Palo Alto, and Emmett. Larvae feeding on the inner bark damages and eventually kills ash trees within two to four years. Indicators of an infestation include canopy thinning, leafy sprouts shooting from the trunk or main branches, serpentine galleries under the bark, bark splitting, woodpecker damage, and one-eighth inch D-shaped exit holes. In 2021, the City Council approved a proactive emerald ash borer management plant which included $1 million to implement the plan and begin the process of removing ash trees on city-owned properties, including the public right-of-way. Quote, if you decide to treat the tree, that will be the homeowner's responsibility to select the method of treatment, the contractor, and continue the treatment, Bach said. It's not just once that you need to do this. It's an ongoing cure for the tree, end quote. The city has contracted for the removal of 16 24-inch ash trees in the Midtown and near Northside neighborhoods. Quote, Hamilton to Court is the first area that we're going to be in, Bach said. During the mid-70s, when Dutch elm disease came through the area, Bach said those elm trees were replaced with ash trees. A few years after the emerald ash borer was discovered in the Ohio and Illinois area, he said the city stopped planting ash trees. Quote, they were a perfect, quick-growing, large tree that tolerated street use, end quote. Like, continuing the quote, like anything, when you overplant something, it becomes someday a problem, end quote, he said. Ash trees are all over the city, including in city parks. Bach said some of those trees in parks will be treated because of the value that they provide. In natural areas, such as Bacon Creek, Bach said ash trees will go through their normal life cycle as any other tree would. Quote, if it's near a trail and it's going to impact the trail, we'll probably remove it, end quote, he said. 
Continuing his quote, if it's out in the middle of a wooded area, it's just part of the natural life cycle, end quote. Property owners can find more information about removing or treating ash trees at sioux-city.org. Click the Community tab at the top to access Sioux City's Emerald Ash Borer Management Plan. Woodbury County Extension will host a public meeting about the Emerald Ash Borer from 6.30 to 8 p.m. on February 2nd at its office, 4728 Southern Hills Drive. Information will also be presented at the Siouxland Garden Show, which runs from March 31st to April 1st at the Marriott Conference Center, 510 East 5th Street in South Sioux City. Moving now to some briefs. On Iowa Politics Podcast, Private School Assistance. On this week's edition of On Iowa Politics Podcast, Private School Financial Assistance on the Fast Track, LGBTQ legislation takes a left turn in the Iowa House, and lawmakers bring the death penalty debate back from the dead. On Iowa Politics is a weekly news and analysis podcast that aims to recreate the kind of conversations that happen when you get political reporters from across Iowa together after the day's deadlines have been met. This week's show is hosted by the Gazette's Des Moines Bureau Chief Aaron Murphy, and features Gazette Deputy Bureau Chief Tom Barton, Sarah Watson of the Quad City Times, Jared McNett of the Sioux City Journal, um, and Gazette columnist Todd Dorman. The show was produced by Stephen M. Colbert, and music heard on the podcast Podcast is courtesy of William Elliott Whitmore and Copperhead. Next brief, Sioux City lifts snow emergency. Less than 48 hours after a single-day record for snowfall, Sioux City has lifted its snow emergency. At 9.20 a.m. Friday, Mayor Bob Scott made the declaration that the emergency would end, quote, effective immediately, end quote. With that, cars are now able to park on both sides of the street unless signage says different. The snowfall from Wednesday afternoon into early Thursday morning totaled at least 7.4 inches and caused double-digit accidents in the metro area. The midweek blast of winter weather also caused waves of school cancellations across the tri-state region. It's time now for a look at the obituaries. We have three of them today. The first one, I'm going to get the name wrong, but I'm going to try to pronounce it both of the ways it could be. It's Angela E. Sunclades, or Angela E. Sunclades, and that is spelled S-U-N-C-L-A-D-E-S, from Sioux City, Angela E. Sunclades, or Sunclades, 71 years old of Sioux City, passed away Tuesday, January 17th in Sioux City. A memorial mass will be at 11 a.m. on Monday at Immaculate Conception Catholic Church, Modern Day Parish. Visitation will begin at 5 p.m. on Sunday at Christy Smith Funeral Home, Morningside Chapel, with the rosary at 6.30 p.m. and vigil service at 7 p.m. Angela Elizabeth Donnelly was born April 21, 1951 in Fort Dodge, Iowa. She moved to Sioux City when she was 11 years old. She graduated from Helan in 1969. On November 29, 1969, she married Anthony V. Sunclades at St. Casimir in Sioux City. She worked for 35 years as an assistant to Keith Shellhammer at Woolridge Insurance, then later at Mills Shellhammer Pitts. 
She was a member of St. Casimir's in Sioux City, then at Immaculate Conception. She also was an active member of the Sioux City Police Auxiliary. She enjoyed spending time with her family, traveling, and watching her favorite shows with her husband. From Newcastle, Nebraska, Cheryl A. Anderson, A-N-D-E-R-S-O-N, Cheryl A. Anderson of Newcastle, Nebraska, 76 years old, passed away Wednesday, January 18th. Services will be at 10.30 a.m. on Monday at the Congregational Church in Newcastle. The visitation will be from 3 to 5 p.m. on Sunday at Moore Funeral Home in Ponca. Burial will be at Newcastle City Cemetery. Online condolences may be directed to MeyerBrosChapels.com. Cheryl was born the daughter of Palmer and Elise Martinson Lund on September 25, 1946 in Ponca, Nebraska. She graduated from Newcastle High School in 1964. Cheryl married Robert Bob Anderson on April 4, 1965 in Newcastle. Cheryl worked at the Newca- in the Newcastle Public School kitchen for many years. She enjoyed playing cards and watching game shows and old westerns. Her time with her grandchildren and great-grandchildren was precious to her. And the final one for today, Richard Raymond Lane from South Sioux City. That's Richard Raymond Lane, L-A-N-E, 91 years old, passed away Thursday, January 19th. Services will be January 25th at 10 a.m. Moore and Becker Hunt Funeral Home. Sandling the arrangements, burial will be at Memorial Park Cemetery. Visitation is January 24th from 5 to 7 p.m. at the funeral home. Going back now to page A4. Supreme Court justices have yet to decide any cases. The Supreme Court has never been so slow. For the first time, the justices have gone more than three months without resolving any cases in which they heard arguments since their term began in early October. By this point, they always had decided at least one case, and usually a handful, according to Adam Feldman, the creator of the Empirical SCOTUS blog. But fall turned to winter without any decisions, and not even a three-week holiday break produced any published opinions. The next opportunity is Monday, before the justices take another break of nearly four weeks. The court has offered no explanation, but several possibilities exist. A change in personnel with Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson joining the court, less consensus on a deeply divided bench, and the consequences of last term's leak of a draft opinion in the case that overturned a half-century of abortion rights. While their opinions have not been prolific, the justices' questioning of lawyers has been robust, with Jackson the most verbose questioner at the court's arguments, Feldman said. Quote, if the amount of speech is related to the amount of writing we will find in her opinions and go to opinions in which she signs on, this could also hamper the pace, end quote, Feldman wrote on Twitter. The divide between the six conservative and three liberal justices is showing up more often in decisions. Last term produced more 6-3 to three outcomes than unanimous decisions, which typically make up the largest share, according to statistics compiled by SCOTUS blog. This term, too, seems likely to produce its share of sharp divisions over the consideration of race in college admissions, voting rights, election law, 
and a dispute between religious and gay rights. Cases in which more than one justice writes an opinion, whether a dissent or a concurrence, take longer than those in which the court is unanimous. In 2018, then-Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg produced the court's first opinion on November 6th in a case argued 36 days earlier. Rapid Ruth, as Ginsburg jokingly called herself, was the court's speediest writer. Ginsburg died in 2020. Last year, just under 30% of decisions were unanimous, and presumably some of this term's cases will lead to that same result. That's where the early May leak of Justice Samuel Alito's draft opinion in the abortion case might come into play. It's possible, and maybe even likely, that the justices have changed some of their internal practices to reduce the chances an opinion will leak. Any changes could extend the time to finalize a decision, such as the Roe v. Wade decision. Justice Sonia Sotomayor is the most recent of the nine members of the nation's highest court to comment on the June decision that overturned nearly a half century of abortion rights. Sotomayor was responding to a simple question for Berkeley Law School Dean Erwin uh, Chemerinsky, who moderated an event with the Justice for the American Association of Law Schools. After last term's momentous decisions, Chemerinsky asked, How are you? Sotomayor appeared to focus on just one of the term's big, conservative-driven cases, which also included expanding gun and religious rights and limiting the Biden administration's efforts to combat climate change. Sotomayor dissented in all those cases. Quote, if you're asking how that momentous decision affected me, my word description would have varied from day to day, end quote, Sotomayor said. Continuing her quote, sometimes I was shell-shocked, other times I was just deeply, deeply sad, and many times I did have a sense of despair about the direction my court was going, end quote. But ultimately, she said she felt she had no choice but to persevere. Quote, yet I realize that one doesn't have an option to fall prey to despair, that I have to get up and keep on fighting, end quote, she said. The event was held in early January, and the association posted a video outlined last week. Other justices have talked about the damage to the court that they believe resulted from the leak. Justice Elena Kagan spoke several times during the summer and fall about the dangers of the court being viewed as a political body. Sotomayor appeared virtually for the Law School Association event, but she had been among the court's most frequent travelers before the coronavirus pandemic changed everything. Only then, Justice Antonin Scalia, who died in 2016, rivaled her in getting out of Washington, she said. The justices are supposed to report their travel when someone else puts the bill in an annual disclosure that is released to the public. But Fix the Court, a watchdog group, has found gaps in the reporting for Sotomayor and other justices. The group has sued the Justice Department under the Federal Freedom of Information Act for records related to the justices' travel. The U.S. Marshals Service, part of the Justice Department, regularly provides security when the justices leave town. 
Fix the Court is seeking records from 2018 to 2022. Two earlier lawsuits and requests for information under state public records laws turned up trips that were not reported by the justices and additional details of some trips that were. In 2016, Sotomayor took six trips paid for by public universities that she initially omitted. She eventually updated her report for that year. Shows a picture in the inset on page A4 of the Supreme Court building and seen on a January 10th on Capitol Hill in Washington. The Supreme Court is off to an historically slow start in failing to resolve any cases in which it has heard arguments since early October. Moving now to some sports, we'll start with the men's college basketball. The Chargers men hit 100 in win. Briar Cliff knocks off Raiders to keep playoff hopes alive. This by Journal Staff and Dateline Sioux City. Matthew Stillwell's 26 points led five Briar Cliff men in double digits as the Chargers knocked off Northwestern 100-89 to Thursday night. The Chargers, who hit the 100-point mark for the first time this season, held off a furious Red Raiders rally in the second half to keep their postseason hopes alive. Briarcliff's offense was clicking in the first half, connecting on 66.7% of their shot attempts and nearly hitting the double-digit three-point mark, going 9 of 14 from deep. Briarcliff held a 50-39 lead after 20 minutes of play, marking their most points scored in a first half this season. The Chargers starters shot a combined 13 for 17 in the first half, led by Quinn Vesey's 13 points on 4 of 4 shooting with 3 triples, 2 rebounds, and 1 steal. Stillwell also scored in the double figures with 11 points and 3 rebounds. Nick Hoyt gave the Chargers their largest lead, 17, with a 3-pointer to make the score 43 to 26, with 3 minutes 35 seconds on the clock. With a minute remaining, Northwestern's Craig Sturk hit a 3 on a Dylan Carlson assist to bring the deficit back to single digits at 48-39. Trailing by 11 at halftime, Northwestern went on a 14-2 run in the second half that was capped off by a basket from Keaton Mosier in the paint to make it 55-54, giving the Red Raiders their first lead of the game. From the 10-minute mark through the final buzzer, however, the Chargers hitting a trio of threes to force a Raider timeout with the score 66-58. to From that point, it was all Briar Cliff, as they went ahead by as many as 14 points. With the Chargers leading by over 10 in the final minutes, the Red Raiders connected on four triples in the final two minutes. The Chargers iced the contest at the free-throw line, going 14 of 15 from the free-throw line, with Vesey converting 6 of 7. Quote, our guys really competed tonight, especially in the first 10 minutes of the second half, end quote, Northwestern head coach Chris Corver said. But if you put your foot in the trap, you can't, keep, can't get it out all the time. You have to tip your cap to Briar Cliff. Sterk, who helped lead the Red Raiders' comeback bid, scored a season-high 30 points, the first 30-point game for a Raider since Alex Van Kalsbeek last March. I thought Craig brought a great game in that his effort was really high, Corver said. When we had the lead, we needed a couple of more stops. We never could create that cushion, and they found the three-point line again. Carlson, named last week's GPAC's Men's Basketball Player of the Week, notched another 20-point game, scoring 24. 
Briarcliff's leading scorer, Stillwell, was 8 of 15 from the field and 8 for 8 from the free throw line on his way to 26 points. Vesey uh, followed with 19 points, 2 rebounds, and 2 assists. Connor Groves and Blade Sindlar added 12 and 10 points, respectively, off the bench, coming, for five at three, uh, coming from five three-pointers. The Chargers, who made 15 threes at 60 po- uh, 60% clip, connected on double-digit trays for the 11th time. The Raiders won the rebounding battle 20 to, uh, 29-21. Stir called in a game-high nine boards. Northwestern, who received votes in the most recent NAIA poll, falls to 14-5 overall on 7-4 in the GPAC. The Raiders host Concordia to, in uh, Orange City on Saturday. The Chargers, who raised their record to 10-9 overall and 4-8 and in the conference, are off this weekend. Briarcliff returns to action Wednesday for a road game against Midland in Fremont, Nebraska. Next story, let's talk about the women Chargers, because the Chargers women knocked off the Raiders. This is my journal staff in Dateline Sioux City. In a battle of NAIA-ranked women's basketball teams, Briarcliff down Northwestern behind a strong fourth-quarter effort, snapping a four-game winning streak for the Red Raiders. The number 21-ranked Chargers, bouncing back from a loss Saturday to league leader Dort, moved into sole possession of second place in the G- uh, Great Plains Athletic Conference, GPAC Conference. Briarcliff improved to 10-3 and in the conference, a half game ahead of number 15-ranked Northwestern, who's 9-3. The Chargers are two games back of third-ranked Dort, which beat College of St. Mary's 91-46 Thursday night to improve 2-12-1 in the league. Briarcliff and Northwestern traded baskets to open the contest as both teams began feeling each other out in the second meeting of 2022 and 2023. The Raiders ended the opening quarter on an 11-5 spurt, taking a 15-13 advantage into the second quarter. The second quarter proved to be a back-and-forth affair as neither team could establish much of an advantage. The largest lead of the game for any team came in the second quarter with the Red Raiders leading 22-17 with just over six minutes left in the half. The Chargers responded with a bucket and a three-pointer to quickly draw even once again. Sudman started to heat up in the quarter, scoring eight of the 12 points. Northwestern outscored the Chargers 13-12 to take a 28-25 lead into the locker room. Briarcliff came out firing in the third quarter, going on an 11-3 run in the first two and a half minutes of play. The Chargers scored more in the third quarter of 27 than they did in the first half of 25. BCU led by as many as nine points at 52-43 late in the period, but Northwestern used the final two minutes to cut that deficit to only trail by three heading into the final frame at 52-49. The Raiders got the first points of the fourth quarter thanks to a layup from Molly Shaney. Briarcliff used their full-court press to ignite a 6-0 spurt to build their lead back up to seven points at 58-51. After a Red Raider timeout, Haley Anderson would stop the bleeding with a clutch three. But a 10-0 run lifted the Chargers to the win at the Newman-Flanagan Center as the two teams split the regular season meetings. Madeline Deichler and Connor Sudman paced the Chargers with 23 and 18 points, respectively. Deichler also, uh, also grabbed three rebounds and forced three steals. 
Sudman recorded 18 points, 5 rebounds, 5 assists, and 4 steals. Wingert was the only other Charger to score in double digits with 13 points. Northwestern's Molly Shaney recorded her third double-double of the season in the effort, 11th of her career with 11 points and 11 rebounds. Maddie Jones added 15 points and Anderson had 11. The Charger women are back on Ray Nackey Court on Saturday when they host College of St. Mary at 2 p.m. The Red Raiders will next host Concordia Saturday in Orange City. It shows two inset pictures on page C4. Uh, Briarcliff's Connor Sudman leaping for a shot defended by Northwestern's Taylor Vandervelte uh, Vandervelte Thursday night in Sioux City. Briarcliff won 70, uh, 75 to 59. Another picture shows Northwestern's Maddie Jones leaping for a shot as Briarcliff's Kennedy Benny defends her during Briarcliff University versus Northwestern college basketball action in Sioux City. That was Thursday, January 19th, just a couple days ago. On the front page, I forgot to go back for this, it shows uh, the front page of the sports section showed the men's basketball. Briarcliff's Matthew Stillwell leaping for a shot defended by Northwestern's Matt Onkin on Thursday night in Sioux City. Stillwell scored a team-high 26 points as the Chargers won 100-89. Going with more college and men's and women's basketball, Mustangs, men, edge Bulldogs, Morningside women fall on the road to Concordia. Staying atop the GPAC standings, the Morningside men's basketball team scored a 76-71 road victory over Concordia to sweep the season series with the Bulldogs. Bulldogs, an NAIA national tournament contender a year ago, showed they still had some bite this season, playing the Mustangs close for the entirety of the contest and trailing by as few as three in the final minute of play. Morningside's 20 points off of 14 Concordia turnovers and depth with 26 bench points proved to be pivotal for the Mustangs as the contest ticked on. Eli uh, Doble's 17 points led five Mustangs in double-digit scoring. Joey Scoff followed with 16 and Jack Dotzler and Aiden Vanderloo each had 13. Dylan Johnson added 11 points, including three three three-pointers. Doble collected a double-digit, leading the Mustangs with 10 rebounds. Dotzler and Brendan Buckley followed with five, and Trey Powers and Johnson each had four. Morningside ranked number 20 in the NAIA, moved all, and 9-2 and two in the Mustangs are ahead of, excuse me, in the NAIA moved to 15-3 and three overall and 9-2 and in the GPAC. The Mustangs are one and a half games ahead of second place Jamestown 7-3, so who were 7-3, which was set to face Doan on the road Friday night. Morningside next travels up the road to Yankton with a GPAC contest with Mount Marty at 3.45 p.m. today. On the other side, Concordia women, 74, Morningside, 60. A furious second-half rally by the Mustangs fell short Thursday night. Morningside fell behind early as Concordia opened the game with an 11-0 run, outscoring the Mustangs 37-21 in the first half. The Sioux City squad turned the tables in the second half, outscoring their hosts 26-17 in the third quarter, but were unable to keep the Bulldogs against the ropes as the buzzer sounded. Sophia Peppers led all scorers with 15 points. Peppers, the reigning GPAC Women's Basketball Player of the Week, completed her second double-double in three games with a team-high 10 boards and also had a team-leading four assists. Alexis Spear added 14 points, and Lily Vollerston tallied 11 for the Mustangs. Vollerston was a rebound away from double digits with nine. Morningside fell to 12-7 overall and 7-6 in the GPAC. Concordia improved to 9-5 in the league and 11-7 overall. 
The Mustangs return to action Saturday when they travel to Yankton, South Dakota, for a 2 p.m. contest against Mount Marty. Moving now to Dear Abby, and the first letter is from Jane M. in Florida, and the title is Readers Offer Responses for Insensitive Questions. I think there's actually a quite a few responses for this, so it's not just Jane M. First one from Jane M. is Dear Abby, in a response to ageless lady in Washington on October 8th who sought a report to people a retort to people who ask her age. I had an aunt who refused to divulge her age. She would say to anyone inquiring, I'll excuse you for asking if you'll excuse me for not answering. That's from Jane M. in Florida. Abby writes back, Dear Jane, that was a classic Dear Abby retort from many years ago, and I once have also, and one I have also recommended. Readers had fun suggesting answers to the delicate question, How old are you? You can read on. Dear Abby, my grandmother lived to 103. She always answered, I'm old enough to have a past and young enough to have a future. She was still saying this past her 100th birthday. That's from Mrs. F. in California. Next one, Dear Abby says, Ageless Lady's letter reminded me of the response my great aunt would use when asked her age. She would say, Can you keep a secret? And the person would say, Yes, I can. She would then say, So can I. That was usually the end of the conversation. That from Rita W., in North Carolina. Next one, Dear Abby, something I heard in a TV commercial would be a perfect response to what Ageless considers a rude question. Age is just a number. Mine is unlisted. That from Carol R. in Arizona. Next one says, As a child I heard and still remember my mom's answer to that question. I enjoy sharing it when the opportunity arises. I'm the same age as my tongue and a little older than my teeth. I enjoy the look of puzzlement it creates. That from Diane H. in the South. Next one. I think it's time we stop behaving as if getting to be a certain age, particularly as women, is something to hide. I hope we will quit giving kids the message that older women are less than. I know the beauty industry would like to perpetuate that myth for economic benefit, but we don't have to aid and abet them. That from Lisa A. Uh, in Connecticut. Next one, Dear Abby, when asked how old I am, I answer, when I was born, the rainbow was black and white. That's from Not Your Business in Kansas. And the last one, Dear Abby, I once received a birthday card that dealt with the issue perfectly. I had a picture of a falcon on it, and it read, If someone asks your age, tell them what Farquart the Talking Falcon says. None of your falcon business. That's from David S. in Georgia. That's it for Dear Abby. Forecast once more for today. Plenty of sunshine, pretty decent day. Nice uh, high of 30 degrees and winds west-southwest at 6 to 12. It's not often I say 30 is nice, but there you go. Mostly cloudy tonight. Low down to 15. Winds west-northwest still at 6 to 12 miles an hour. On Sunday, sun and some areas of low clouds here and there. High of 23. West-southwest winds at 4 to 8. Sunday night, mostly cloudy, low of 13. And mostly cloudy uh, Monday, high of 31. Winds west-northwest. At 6 to 12. So it's going to be a degree warmer than today, but won't feel it because of the sun and the clouds and bleh. Uh, to Monday night, mostly cloudy, low 14. Then clouds and sunshine on Tuesday, high of 29. South-southeast winds 6 to 12 miles an hour. Tuesday night's low of 11. Uh, as it turns cloudy again, mostly cloudy on Wednesday, high of 26. And winds northwest at 8 to 16. 
That does it for the reading of the Sioux City Journal for today, Saturday, January 21st, 2023. For the last hour, the stories have been selected and read by yours truly, John Reef. All material heard on Iris is intended solely for the use of the blind and print handicapped. Do you have any questions? You can call Iris toll-free at 877-404-4747. We thank you for listening to Iris, your radio reading service.